0: Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, it's the storyboard whiz behind Pirates of the Caribbean series and director of the absolute must-see film Coherence. It's James Ward-Burkett. James, how are things?
1: Uh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Robert.
0: Well, I'm just, I, I have to start it off. Why in the hell did you not make a movie in the last almost decade now you make one of the best movies of the 2010s and we don't see you again. Where the hell have you been?
1: Oh, thank you. Yes. If you're trying to make me actually jump off the bridge, you're doing a great job. (laughs) Um, If I could answer that, Robert, this, uh, this would be a very easy conversation. I don't know. Um, You'd have to ask all the people that I've pitched the 60 projects uh, to Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons. I I don't, it's not a good look to be a, to be a victim. So I don't really care like why I couldn't get anything off the ground. I would rather focus on like, okay, if if there's obstacles to me doing what I love, I need to think of how to do it anyway. You know, I just, I just don't want to spend time dwelling on whatever, you know, unfair cosmic force is, is at play and just kind of say, all right, whatever, whatever is happening, I just need to make something and I'm going to make something anyway. So that's, that's kind of my focus right now.
0: Well, what are you working on right now? Because I see there's rumor mills about you maybe working on a television series, maybe another feature, stuff like that. But what are you actually doing right now?
1: Well, right now, I realized, um, you know, I, that nothing in in the typical Hollywood path was going to be fruitful for me. I'm just not the kind of director that fits in. Uh, apparently, with the mechanics of of how it's done, and I love working on big movies. I worked on the Pirates of the Caribbean, like you said, and I and I love big crews and everything like that. But I don't really. Um, I don't have the patience to, to wait for other people to, you know, green light something or give me permission to do something. So right now we went back to the same model as coherence. And I said, all right, I'm just going to get a camera and some actors. I'm just going to start shooting something. So instead of a film, we're actually doing something that's never done. And we're making an independently financed, independently made uh, television anthology series. And I kind of, you know, put my head in the, in the space that Rod Serling found himself when he got Twilight Zone and he was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta churn out a script every week, I just have to do it. And so during the pandemic last year, I, was, I just started writing and calling friends and putting together little groups of, uh, y- you know, co-conspirators to, uh, to pull off this show. It's called Shatter Belt. And we've already shot two episodes and we're about to shoot the third episode. And uh, hopefully by this time next year, we'll be, you know, reviewing five or six of those episodes.
0: I'm excited to hear that you're keeping it to the the Burkitt way of filmmaking. You're just going to go and do it.
1: <laughs> I love that yeah, shit. Yeah, I didn't want to. I I, <laughs> I would have. I tried. I mean, I, I, I could I could make you cry, Robert. If if we're not recording, I could tell you stories of, of how, you know, things almost started and how last year I was, you know, was going to move my, my wife and my son to Texas to work on the coolest uh, project you've ever heard of. And then how that got sunk by... Um, you know, allegations that this guy who was involved in it 15 years ago did something bad and that, you know, wiped that project off the face of the earth forever. Like every story just ends in heartbreak. And so it just said, all right, I got to, I got to separate myself from all of that baggage and just do it.
0: Okay. Now I'm curious, do you like the direction that not only just Hollywood, but filmmaking is going right now?
1: Oh, that well, that's a deep question. Um, I mean, in a way, there's some obviously great films being made still, but they don't make, you know, they don't... Uh, I was looking at the, the newspaper um, ads for movies from 40 years ago, and, like, it had Kramer versus Kramer, you know? Like, as a big-budget, you know, big-release movie. A movie about two, pe- you know, divorced parents and a guy trying to raise his kid. Now, today, that would be a little tiny indie or a tiny little netflix that just comes and goes but back then like that was a major cultural centerpiece you know to dustin hoffman and meryl streep that's the kind of movie that i miss and and you know i don't know if that's ever coming back so if 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 you don't roll with the times you definitely you could you could um say that everything's gone downhill but then again there's you know there's so many new voices that never got a chance to to be heard, and that's pretty exciting. There is people making films that that never could have even got a foot in the door. So, yeah, I am trying to stay pretty positive about it.
0: Do you find yourself being influenced by modern filmmakers now? Like, is there a particular film or even television series, miniseries that has really grabbed a hold of you lately?
1: All the time I'm influenced. I, I, I mean, I get influenced by things that nobody's seen before. I, I worked on as a mentor on this um, Six Feet Apart uh, film series by Wayfair, Justin Baldoni, and like these, these young people who'd never made a feature before got $50,000 to make their first feature. And that was fascinating, to like, watch these people make their first movie. And I actually learned from them, like how their minds work and and how what are their priorities. So I'm always looking, always influenced by uh, everything I see. I'm also simultaneously watching Seinfeld because I realized I never watched most of that show. And so you know, my my brain loves to be fed by everything. I, I also got really into this film, uh, Meet John Doe, which is Barbara Stanwyck and. Gary Cooper, and I was like, this is amazing. This is this is better than anything that's made today. So I keep going back to the past, and then I keep looking, you know, toward the future and, and see what's going to pollinate for me.
0: Well, let's go into the past, and let's start it off. Why did you decide to shoot on the Canon, as opposed to something like, let's say, the Sony PD at the time?
1: Okay, so you're talking about coherence, yes. where we... We just got a consumer or a prosumer camera that that's honestly that whole movie started as a camera test. Coherence was a camera test because I owned a Canon 7D and I was wondering if it was good enough to shoot a movie on, even though it was this, you know, kind of low resolution camera and a friend of mine had a 5D. So I said, oh, let's have a night where we both shoot something with each camera and then we'll edit it together and see if the eye can detect when you're cutting from one to the other. And I said, okay, as long as we're doing a camera test, let's, let's try these other things that I've always wondered about which is what if we got rid of the script? I've Always thought that that would be a really fun exercise not to give the actors the script and just give them kind of character motivations. And then I'd always thought, wouldn't it be fun to get rid of the crew? Because the crew really slows me down. And so we had a night where they came over, some some friends came over for a couple hours. And we did this camera test. And it went so well, I said, well, let's just make a movie out of it. And we'd already been using the cannons. And, but the 5D did look better than the 7D. And so we just kept going on the 5D.
0: Was it terrifying or was it liberating to just get rid of all the rules and just go for it at that point because you'd been a storyboard artist for such a long time up to that and that's kind of what you knew was structure so to get rid of the structure that's a bold bold move
1: (laughs) yeah it was exactly the opposite of everything i had been doing which is planning every shot and crafting the perfect frame and all about composition and camera placement and everything, but I had been craving it because I had been working on these huge movies where you you control every pixel, you know, you're just like, um, it's it's not spontaneous. There's so much control. And I was missing the days where I, I did a lot of theater and when I was in uh school, and I missed the days when it was just like you and the actors. And so I really found it liberating to to not have to wait around for lights to be moved and and wait around for the crew to move and wait, wait around for actors to come out of their trailers. I just had this fantasy of like, what if we're just shooting all the time? What if we're just like always going? And so that part was absolutely amazing. And my brain happens to be very, just able to roll with whatever chaos is happening in the moment and be thinking like well what are the shots I would need to make this scene make sense and I didn't know that would happen but it just just kind of happened where the more we got into it the more comfortable I got and I, I just realized how much I love it I love having uh, the actors participate not knowing what they're gonna do but kind of um, you know predicting probably what they're gonna do and then Structuring it in the moment and kind of signaling to the other cameraman where he should go in order to make the shot make sense, and and we would have to go back sometimes and and you know shoot an insert or shoot a close up or whatever to kind of fill it out, but overall it was incredibly exhilarating uh, working without a net and and knowing that it was that dangerous you know.
0: Well, how many like story structures did you have? Did you go to the actors each day and say, at least steer it this way? Maybe don't continue going this one direction.
1: Yeah. Every day I would email the eight actors a little note or, or a few, a, might be a paragraph, might be a two paragraphs, or I'd highlight a story they should say, or I'd say, you know, this is kind of the key thing that you need to do tonight. So they would all know somewhat of what their character was thinking. They just wouldn't know what everybody else was thinking. So that was the exciting part is, is seeing how it would bash together and seeing how someone would sort of fight to get their point out or see how they would uh, have conflicting motivations. And yeah, it was it was complicated, but that was the thrill of it, of knowing like this is one of the most complicated Sort of puzzle movies. There's all these moving pieces and clues and things, and yet, absolutely no uh, written dialogue for it. You'd think it would be the opposite. You'd think you'd have to, you know, plan every single word and every single story beat to make that sense. Make sense. But uh, I found it was the opposite because my brain could hold all the pieces together. And you know, if somebody did something truly that was unusable. I kinda of let them get it out of their system and then I'd be like, okay, why don't we go back five minutes and this time let's steer it this way? So
0: how much I guess preparation did you have to do on set thinking about the editing of this? Were you at like when when somebody's talking, were you jotting down like the most massive amount of notes to to have everything? I guess coherent for you going into the editing suite or or how did that work No
1: the the opposite no notes at all cuz I'm holding a camera and and I've got a DP Nick Sadler who's holding a camera and we're just going we're just shooting and shooting there's no time to write notes there's there's no there's no script supervisor to take notes there's nobody else on set and so it's all in your head and you're just kind of watching the other camera going all right is he kind of at the right angle to capture that part that I'm hoping I don't know. And then I didn't even get to look at the footage until, you know, a week later and realize what was missing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, how hard was the editing room for you? Did you, did it kind of come together pretty quickly or how long did it take you?
1: I sat down and did my own pass of the edit for a month or so, just flailing about and, and doing my best, shot you know at, at getting a story together and not worrying about it just saying if it doesn't make sense that's okay I, I'll, I'll go back and reshoot uh, another line if I have to or I'll, I'll rework this later with a real editor and so I didn't put the pressure on myself to make it perfect and, and this is one of the few times where when you don't have a f- script you're not trying to match anything that's like you always hear about directors in you know, that are suffering because it doesn't match their vision. And, but in this case, because there was no expectation of a final product, that actually relieved pressure. You know, that, that was actually great, just shooting towards an unknown target. And then when I finally brought in a real editor, which was Lance Pereira, he looked at it. And I think the first thing he said was, okay, okay, what if it takes place on a boat? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you're basically throwing everything away. Right. you like, we're, there's nothing usable here. And he was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I don't know if this is working, but after the very first day of working with him and after he started moving some stuff around and, and kind of getting into it, he saw the potential of it and he got really excited and he was like, Oh, okay. So there's, there's actually an incredible amount of potential here because there's, there's so much footage and we can guide the story however we want. And so he really became the key to, to getting out of the weeds.
0: I've always been curious about the audio and the sound mix of this film, because I've shot in a Canon before I find if you're shooting audio on the Canon, it sounds awful. Somehow you got some really sharp and clear, frankly, great dialogue to go along with this film Did you have to spend a lot of time in the sound mix? Were you recording separate sound at the time? How did did that all come about?
1: Yeah, the one thing I learned, and this is the thing that I tell new filmmakers all the time, is that the audio is actually more important than the video, especially if you're making a scrappy self-made film. For some reason, audiences will forgive a shaky image and a rough image, but they won't forgive sound. As soon as you have bad sound, it just sounds like a crappy, you know, student experiment. And it it just takes you instantly out of it. So luckily that was the one place we spent money and I had a real sound crew that was, came in and loved all the actors. Everybody's on their own microphone. And so we had eight clean tracks of audio for the entire movie. Spent all the money on the mix, a little bit of re-recording, but really not much. It 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 actually ninety-five uh, percent of it was was perfect. And to my great joy, even when we sh- have showed this at film festivals in big old theaters, you know, with their fancy speakers, it holds up. the The sound mix was done so well, and five-point-one sound that it it sounds as good as any movie.
0: Well, I want to take you way back now because I'm curious, having such, I guess, such a vision, such passion behind, behind that project, what were some of the films that you really admired growing up? How did you get into film? And, and really, I guess, how did you come to the art that you wanted while growing up? Or did you just frankly have to create it because you are a storyboard artist?
1: Yeah, I just had this crazy eclectic taste even as a kid. And my film uh, you know, education came about in my teenage years when I found that my parents and my sisters went to bed. And every night at 11 o'clock after the news, the late movie would come on. And I would watch from 11 to 1 or 11 to one thirty, everything from 1930s, mysteries and 1940s world war ii and 1950s musicals and 1960s surf movies and 1970s all the, the golden years of, of that stuff and i just realized i loved it all and and you know as much of a star wars nerd as i was i loved like west side story and uh, dr strange love and kurosawa and and so i guess really by the time i was 13 i was like I have to do this somehow, I have to be part of this. And I just started, um, you know, there was no filmmaking classes I could take. So the closest thing was drawing and theater. And those were two things that I just started getting into more and more. And luckily this job of storyboard artist exists that gave me sort of a focus to, you know, to be able to rub shoulders with directors, to get on set, to see what they were doing, to see what's actually going on, and then everything I saw just made sense to me. I was like, "Oh yeah, this is what I this is what I imagined," you know, when I was twelve. That's that's kind of what I was um, hoping it would be. And then along the way, I just kept thinking there's different ways I would do it. Like coherence kind of came out of this idea I had when I was watching an episode of ER. So ER was was big, you know, in the '90s. And they had this episode that was supposed to be the sort of documentary episode, as if there was a documentary crew. And I was so excited because I go, oh, that's, that's what I'm craving. I, I want to get away from the artificiality of these sort of, you know, soap opera dramas and just like feel that you're actually there listening to people really talking. What would they really talk about? And I was so disappointed with that episode because they changed the camera style, but they didn't change the acting style. They didn't change the writing style. And so all it did was expose the artifice, the artifice of how stilted the writing was and how stylized the acting was. Because when you have a, a documentary camera, you need everything to be natural Bit You know, you should hear, you should hear a very messy dialogue Bit You shouldn't hear these perfectly timed you know scenes that have buttons and everything and i remember as a young man just going oh no 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 no! that's not how you do it you should not have scripted that you should have just told the actors basic motivations you should just and not tell them when the camera's coming so that the camera's truly overhearing them and the camera's truly um a fly on the wall So that's the kind of thing that would inspire me is like watching somebody else's great work, but then going, Oh, how would I do it? I can't wait to do it a different way.
0: Did you ever think about any documentaries that you might do yourself? Was there anything that you were itching to do that way?
1: That's really funny. You asked that because now in this age of, of kind of manufactured facts and and all the fake, you know, news that's happening and, and all that when. When I was in college, I thought, wouldn't that be interesting if someone made a documentary that had all the trappings of a scholarly, serious investigation, and yet its claims were absolutely ridiculous. And I thought about making one that was just like, um, had the the highest level of production, the highest level of reasonable people being interviewed. But they were just saying, yeah, the, the earth is flat. You know, and that's just, that's just the way it is. And just to see as an experiment, what that kind of cognitive dissonance would would result in. And it turns out I don't have to make that because that's <laughs> that happened anyway. And it happens every day in reality. The slickness of these documentaries or, or these things on YouTube that come out, you can't tell, you know, before you could, you could kind of tell by the quality of the documentary, how, legitimate it was because you'd say well they would have never put that much effort into it if you know if their facts were bad but now anybody can do that anybody can get a very serious voiceover and amazing graphics and amazing uh sounding um references and say whatever they want
0: living in america are you terrified of the world right now
1: no I love the world. I love, I love the chaos and and the absurdity of it all. I think it's wonderful to be alive and to see, you know, even if it all falls apart, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, we might all be eating uh, cockroaches and and hunting rodents for a while, but that's fine. It's life is beautiful and the earth is beautiful. And it's all going to be, it's all going to work out, even if it all crumbles.
0: So working with some heavyweights like Gore and Edgar what would you say you've learned the most from them and and kind of being right close to them doing, doing some storyboards? What, I guess, are the masters teaching people like yourself?
1: Well, that is a great question because you can really tell the difference between the masters and the posers. And there is a huge difference. When you're working with someone like Gore Verbinski or, or Edgar Wright, it's so clear that they not just have a vision, because anybody can have a vision, but they have looked at it in, in, from every different angle. They've researched it. They've put hundreds and thousands of hours, real hours of work into understanding what they're, what they're doing. They have a deep love of the craft. They have a deep love of whatever they're working on that comes through. They just uh, inspire you because they've done their homework, they have n- truly new ideas, new ways of approaching things. And that is a huge lesson to me. Like, if you're going to do something, you better be ready to do it full on and, and 10 times more than you ever thought somebody was doing it. Because once in a while, I would work for a director, even a big name director, who was phoning it in. And, man, what a, what a difference, you know. They don't know anything about why they're doing these shots. They don't know anything about what they're trying to say. They don't, they're just collecting a paycheck and, and chatting with the, with the actors.
0: Well, working with Gore, I guess, led you to working on video game. How crazy and different of an experience was that for you? Did you find that easier or harder than working on a film?
1: Well, if you're talking about the Rango video yes. game, that that was actually really easy because they just wanted the writing of the, you know, the overall story. I was not involved in any of the the gaming dynamics of it. So, that was really fun just kind of saying, "All right, if we were to expand this <laughs> into another medium, what kind of what kind of ridiculous situations would Rango get into?" So, th- I loved it. That was really easy for me and and again, that's kind of how my brain works anyway. I remember playing uh you know, Grand Theft Auto. I was playing Vice City. And the whole time I was playing it, I was rewriting it in my mind. I was like, well, this scene should have been this. Oh, this scene should have been the low point. Oh, this should have been the turning point and, and kind of adding a narrative structure. And I was, I was so tempted to just walk in to Rockstar and say, hey, by the way, I've rewritten it. I've given it a narrative that actually, you know, has <laughs> catharsis to it and has some kind of meaning if you, if you ever, you know, want to do it better.
0: Well, working on Rango, the film, how exciting was was that as a project? Just because you have an entire world that you can essentially start from scratch. It's animated; it can go anywhere.
1: Yeah, Rango was a dream because it was just Gore Verbinski and me and Crash McCreary, this amazing conceptual artist behind you know Jurassic Park and and uh, you know un, unlimited amount of uh, creature designs that he's done and a small group of just friends working out of a house. So we didn't have any studios oversight. It was just us. And it was just kind of um, spelunking into Gore's brain every day. Gore and I would write stuff together. We would do all the voices together. We would write songs together. We would meet uh, John Logan, the writer, and, and kind of explain everything that we had been working on. Then John was great, because he'd take all of our day- ideas and kind of bounce them back to us. So that was glorious, uh, being that unfettered. And also Gore was coming off of Pirates 3, which made a gazillion dollars. So he had this brief period where he, he really could do anything he wanted. And, uh, and it was wonderful because you're just around people you love.
0: So how did you essentially get to work with Gore in the first place?
1: Oh, I was right out of school and I was a struggling storyboard artist. And I was just, you know, so hungry to, to be, you know, directing my own things and, and being creative. And, and so Gore was one of the very first directors that I got sent out uh, to do a day or two. Uh, he was directing commercials back then. He was he like did the Budweiser Frogs and some really iconic uh, 90s commercials. So we just hit it off instantly, you know, and we ended up doing 30, 40, 50 little commercials together. So when I ended up starting to direct, uh, like I was doing commercials and, and television on my own, Gore would still call me up. He'd be like, hey man, I know you're directing, but do you want to work on a movie? And I'd be like, yeah. If you're directing it, absolutely. And we just kind of, we just loved working together. And, and on the Pirates movies, because the, the sequels weren't written yet, we had to start shooting before, the, <laughs> before they were written. So we ended up storyboarding it before it was written. And so Gore and I were creating scenes out of nowhere. And then we would show them to the writers and the writers would then write it after the fact. And, and I think that's really where, um, our writing bond kind of, kind of came together. And, And so right after that, he, he called me up and said, let's just, let's make an animated movie together.
0: Well, and then I'm glad that you mentioned television, how I not even how, what would you say you learned the most from television? Because it is a faster paced environment. So if you go from that to, to working on on film, it's a whole other game. So what did you learn in your time in television, even your TV movie, um, Stop at Nothing?
1: Yeah, well, that was weird. That was an Aaron Spelling pilot that for some reason they hired me for. And I just kind of got used to how much money they were spending on things that were irrelevant. And I, again, my brain just kept going, oh, there's a better way to do this. This, this is fun. I'm, I'm really grateful that they gave me the chance to do this. But this is not how I would make anything. I would not spend all this money on the infrastructure and all this money on things that are not on, on film. You know, we'd have this huge crew, this gigantic circus. And yet the scene we're shooting is just like in the corner of a room. And I was like, I could have done this with you know, four people and that that was really kind of the start of this dream of doing something like coherence which is get rid of everything i don't need and and put it all on screen
0: have you well i guess have you noticed that crews are are becoming even more bloated now or have you noticed that directors are finally starting to realize less is actually more
1: i i have no idea what other <laughs> people are doing for me I have learned that there is a balance and that sometimes you just have to be flexible. We we did our first two episodes of Shatterbelt with just a skeleton crew, you know, maybe it really was just a camera and the actors and and me. And then we we went up on the second episode we're like, well, maybe we need a costume designer for one day. Maybe that would help. And then on this third episode it's going to be much bigger because we have tons of extras. So now we do need, you know, an AD or a second AD to keep track of 50 extras. So for me, it's just really looking at it. And instead of having the, you know, just the the automatic assumption that you need a certain amount of people, you just can scale up or down depending on what the production is asking for. And again, I love big crews. I loved working on Pirates of the Caribbean and some of the best uh, people I know are, are, you know, prop people or or lighting people or or costume people, and when it's warranted, they are the greatest people to have because they're so much better at what they do than you could ever be. And and I hope you know, like I could imagine Shatterbelt getting to the point where there's one or two episodes that that are full on, like as big as a movie, and then a couple episodes that are back to the skeleton crew.
0: Are you thinking like really far ahead? Like how long is Shatterbelt going to be? How many seasons are you already thinking about? Are you just going to try to contain it to this one for now?
1: No, the the goal is definitely like years and years of this. Like that would be a dream come true. If we could get a streamer to uh, pick us up and say, oh my God, you're, this is great. You're churning out all these ideas. Because basically Shatterbelt is a is a way for me to make use of this depository of ideas that have built up over the last 20 years, you know, every morning I wake up with, with a new idea and there's nowhere to put it, you know, like,
0: and then we're all just sitting here waiting for it. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's the perfect vehicle for even ideas that I thought would be movies that would take years to get off the ground. Now I can just make an episode and it's 25 minutes long, shoot it in a week and it exists and it's in the world. So for me, it's a much better way to, to, use all of this kind of backlog of of creative ideas that, that has been storing up and I had no place to put it. Because I suffer from, you know, how do I get these ideas out of my head and, and where do I put them? I can draw them, but that's not as satisfying as actually shooting them.
0: Do you find yourself always reverting back to sci-fi or what is kind of the genre that I guess you're most thinking about?
1: Yeah, I, for me... Sci-fi is the most comfortable just because I'm fascinated and, and I'm attracted to something new and something you haven't seen before. And so that obviously goes hand in hand with these sci-fi concepts. Now that doesn't mean to say there's there's tons of stories that, that can still be told that are new that are not sci-fi. I I read amazing things all the time. I read a great a great book about the the race to build the tallest buildings, you know, the Chrysler building and the the uh, Empire State Building. and That's, ama- that's fascinating to me because I haven't really seen that, that story before and that's not science fiction. So I think Shatterbelt will continue to be lo-fi sci-fi because that's just a really great pocket of mind bender. But uh, yeah, I love, I have a heist movie and a puzzle movie that have nothing to do with science fiction. They're, they just have elements that have not been done before and, and that's really attractive.
0: Well, James, thank you so much for coming on here today. I hope that you come back on when Shatterbelt is out. I know I'm excited to see it. My wife's everybody's excited to see this. So the the sooner the better on this one.
1: Oh, bless you. Yeah, you can Google it. I think we have um, an Instagram for Shatterbelt that my sister runs. The more people that talk about it, the more likely we can actually get picked up somewhere so uh the fans can help us if if you uh if you are interested in it shout about it and that will encourage somebody to actually uh you know pick it up and and make many seasons happen
0: perfect thank you so much
1: thank you robert this is great
0: thank you for listening that was james ward burkett if you haven't seen coherence what the fuck are you doing go get it it's available on dvd blu-ray Get that damn movie. It is one of the best films of the 2010s. And I'm going to put this in the show notes, but there's a little Patton Oswalt interviewing James for a little fundraiser. Please, please, please check that shit out. Get the word out there. Let's let's make this TV show happen. Shatterbelt, James, James Ward-Burkett, let's do this. This concludes our broadcast day. Yeah.